Uh, I got one other thing before we start, and we haven't done a great job of telling you guys about this, but uh, last year we did this thing called Planting Roots, and part of it was about, you know, so we have a permanent facility at, at some point, so we're not homeless like we have been the last eight years or so, uh, and but in that, what we did is we gave you guys little devotional booklets to go through. So everybody element was going through the same thing at the same time. And what we're going to do this year, we're doing the same thing. It's not focused on giving or planting roots. It's actually focused on the birth of Jesus and what it means that he came into the world to rescue and redeem us. And so we're doing a whole thing called Advent. All right? And so part of these agape meals, if you can't make it to one, let us know, because that Sunday, the 22nd, we want to make sure all of you get one of these booklets, because there's daily devotions for five weeks. We want everybody to go through it. They're short and easy. This book ended up being about 100 pages. We made this, by the way. <laughs> um, and so you go through these daily devotions. There's, there's questions if you're not in the gospel community. There's, there's family questions. You can ask those as well to your family or your friends. Uh, if if you're in the gospel community, you'll go through those questions together. Again, if you're not, we'd like you at some point to maybe get together with the meal with some other people and maybe go through some of this stuff. Uh, we want everybody to kind of go through this when we hit through the Christmas season. We step out on the back side, and we know who Jesus is better. Uh, we understand his grace and his love given to us, and we begin to live in that more and more. So just be aware that's coming. If you are not here on that 22nd when we're doing those agape meals, we're going to invite you guys to grab one of these that day because the daily devotions will start the 23rd of November that morning and go all the way through Christmas. Questions? All right. These are great. Um, it, was, it, it took a, a bunch of people like going through and like fixing all my bad grammar and stuff, but Mikey ended up putting these things together, and they are pretty darn awesome, so you can't have one now. I'll give them to you later. But. I want you to stand me reading the God's Word. We'll get started. This is Jude, verse 11, and it says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And you're like, what in the world does that even mean? Glad you asked. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I want to thank you so much for being a God who does rescue and does redeem. Uh, who has called us to be your people, and you've made us into your children. I ask that we would be kids who reflect the gracious goodness of our Father. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our series called Legends of the Fall. Uh, it's a series where we look at a lot of the bad guys or bad stories in the Bible, hence the decor with all the darkness and the city burnt down behind me and stuff like that. You get some really crazy stories. Uh, today is also one of those crazy stories. And i got to jump in. We have a lot to cover today. I say that a lot, but I really mean it today. i got a lot to cover. We're going to look at Balaam and his talking Shrek donkey. So if your Bible, open to Numbers chapter 22. It is in the Bible. I know it's called Numbers, but yes, it is in the Bible. While you turn there, I'm going to give you some background of where we are in the biblical narrative and story, because when we hit Numbers 22, we're going to jump right into the middle of the story. I'm going to give you Bible history in about two to three minutes. Don't get whiplash. I am a professional. Don't try this on your own. All right. So... When, when God makes everything, he makes everything good. God says what is good, and he tells the man that he makes, he places him in this garden of good things and says, follow me because I know the good. And so God takes his creation, he places it under the responsibility and stewardship of this man and this woman, and he tells them, you are free to do anything you want, just stay in relationship with me, trust me for what the good is, trust me for the things that I have said, don't disobey me. Man immediately disobeys God and everything falls apart. This is one of the reasons why we call it 
the fall because it's there that we fell. But even after that fall, God comes and he promises that a redeemer will come to rescue and restore. Millennia of sin follow after this where man kills one another and ravages the earth. And eventually God starts off over partly with a guy named Noah. Uh, Noah's name in Hebrew is actually grace spelled backwards. Uh, After Noah, God covenants to not destroy the earth again, even though man himself has not changed. And eventually God will come to a guy named Abraham and say, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And you will have a son that will lead to a son that will lead to a son that will lead to a son that ultimately leads to my son, Jesus. So Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Later, God renames this guy Israel. Israel has 12 sons because he's an overachiever. Uh, These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become a nation. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Israel and his 12 sons and their families, about 70 people in all, go into Egypt because there's a great famine in the land that they are living, living in. Now, Joseph, who is one of Israel's sons through the crazy twist of providence of God, ends up being in charge of most of the land of Egypt during the famine. And he saves Israel and Egypt. You get to the next book of the Bible, it's called Exodus. And in Exodus, you have fast-forwarded about 400 years. And these Israelites who have gone into this other country, they now, after 400 years, have become this country's slaves. And they are crying out to God, and God answers them by sending them a guy named Moses to deliver them. You've probably heard of him. He looks a lot like Charlton Heston, or I guess Christian Bale now, one or the other. And God uses Moses to bring his people out of slavery into freedom in this great act that we call the Exodus. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, when it refers to redemption and salvation, it is always referring back to this idea that we are in slavery and we are in bondage and we cry out and God is the one who rescues and redeems and pulls us out of our slavery and into the promised grace of who he is, the Exodus. Now, when the Israelites get free, God takes them to a place called the promised land. When Israel looks at the promised land, they get really afraid because they, just like Adam and Eve and like everybody else along the way and just like us, don't trust that God really knows the good for our lives. So they get afraid and they start to complain about how they don't really trust God. And so God says, fine, you can wander around in the desert for the next 40 years until this generation dies off. And then I'll send in the next generation to take possession of that land. Got to be careful what you complain about. Okay, that's how it goes. So number 22, what it does, it starts near the end of this 40 years of wandering in these desert lands. They are almost ready to enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land, but now they're not coming in from the south, they're coming in from the east. So here's a map. Now, originally, they would have come around and just come, up, come from the south, but now they're coming in through the east. They skirt Edom and Moab to the east, Ammon, Ammon in the southwest. God gives detailed instructions to them at this time. He says, I don't want you going through these people's lands. Don't drink their water or take their food. I want you to bypass them. There's a couple of reasons for this. One of them is simply that the Moabites tie themselves back to Abraham's nephew, Lot. Edom is Jacob, who becomes Israel. That's his brother's. Uh, these are his brother's people, so God just says, go around them, leave them alone. And so when they did this, it took them a lot longer to go around, but here they are learning to actually finally trust God, to listen to the things that he says. Now, it still wasn't easy. They had to battle the, uh, the Amorites, which they won that battle. Then they had to go north, and they get in this little kerfuffle with the king of Bashan. His name is Og. They defeat them as well. So those two groups of people are now gone, and the Israelites find themselves in this place called the plains of Moab. 
the plains of Moab. It's a 10-mile stretch along the Rift Valley. Here's a picture of it today. So imagine you have 2 to 5 million people, okay? And they're sitting, they would look like they're covering the earth when they sat within the plains of Moab. So this is where the Israelites are camped out, opposite the Jordan River and Jericho. And so what it is, you have their like uh, east side of the Jordan. They are opposite Jericho, northeast of the Dead Sea, on the plains of Moab. You all know where we are now, right? Yeah, okay. So anyway, that, that's how it goes. So the king of Moab, he is a guy named Balak. Balak, he is not convinced Israel is going to leave him alone. He gets really scared when he looks out and sees all of these people. He knows Israel is very, very powerful because they just defeated the Amorites and Bashan. And he knows he can't attack them through normal means because they would destroy him. So he's afraid. He's trying to find a way out of this. What am I going to do in this? And so Balak hatches a plan. Numbers 22, where we're going to start, this is the plan hatchery. We're all going to Kind of head into the plan hatchery here. Numbers 22, verse 4. So Balak, son of Zippor, and, and you know Balak didn't have a great childhood going up because his dad probably had all kinds of baggage because only like a pothead or a skater would name their kids Zipper, right? So it's like he's already starting off bad, right? Who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, and actually his name is Balaam, but everybody says Balaam, so I'm just going to say Balaam, so I go along with our messed up pronunciation of it, uh, son of Beor at Pathor. And I know it all sounds like it's like a rap rhyme. It's not, okay? It's not. Which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him Sain. So Balak wants to go to Balaam, call him Sain. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, because that's what it looked like, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I should be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now before in the scriptures, the only person who gets the right to bless and curse people is God. So this is really important. So Balak's plan is to hire a prophet to curse the Israelites. This is voodoo theology. Hey, bring your dolls and your pins and I'll just start poking all those people out there with the pins. <laughs> that's, that's what he wants to do. Now, Balaam is in, a, is in a place called Pathor. It is really far away, like 450 miles. It's in a place called Mesopotamia. So it would take 20 to 25 days to get there one way during that time. But Balak wants Balaam to come because Balaam is world famous. He's like Katy Perry or Oprah. He's known like everywhere you go. He's so famous, there's actually an inscription that has been found 300 years after his death that refers back to him. That's how famous he is. Now, Balaam, he is a pagan prophet. He is a seer. People call this a, a diviner. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't discount Israel's God, but he kind of just goes with whatever God anybody says they want to worship, and that's just okay. So I guess he's a lot like Oprah, so we'll just leave it there. Now, he, he, can, he can see the... What? I can't say that? Really? Have you not been here? Have you not met me? Okay, all right. <laughs> if that's the least thing you get offended by today, great. Okay, so... He can, he can see the future. He tells people he can see the future. He does this through casting of lots, uh, reading of omens, tea leaves, lifelines, tarot cards. Uh, he would take and cut open an animal and take out the liver and read the future from the liver of a dead animal. So you have to know animals. You have to know flight patterns of birds and all of these things. Now, Balak also believes Balaam is a sorcerer. 
Now, a seer, they only see the future, but a sorcerer is able to influence and to change the future. In this time, it is believed that someone like Balaam could harness the power of the gods. And if they blessed the people, those people would be blessed. If they cursed them, it would go bad for them. This is why Balak wants this guy. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of, the, of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand because Balaam doesn't come cheap and you got to pay for it. See, like Oprah, I'm just saying. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now, this is kind of like negotiations. What Balaam assumes to happen is he's going to go off and say, I'm going to talk to the gods. And he's going to come back and say, oh, the gods said I can't go. They're going to offer him more money. And he's going to be like, okay, I'll take the more money. And then he would go. But verse 9, and God came to Balaam, which he probably was not expecting, and, and said, who are these men with you? Now, it's not that God doesn't know who they are. This is just like uh, Cain and Abel. When, when Cain kills Abel and God says to Cain, where is your brother? God knows where Abel was. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin and they're hiding from God. And God says, where are you? God knows exactly where they are. This is to get Balaam talking and start working through things in his mind. So Balaam tells God what's going on to his best ability. Verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And so God says to Balaam, no. God's rationale is that I have blessed them and what I blessed is blessed and you can't go against me. Balaam is not, or God is not afraid of Balaam and his trickeries and all of these things. I think what's happening here is God is once again extending grace. He's saying, Balaam, don't go and do this. Blessing and cursing comes up a lot in the story so far. And if you look in the biblical narrative, you know why. Genesis 12, God talks to Abraham. His first words to this guy is, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. This is, I will curse those who curse you. And all the families of the, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God comes in, he partners with Abraham to redeem the world. I'm going to bless you. You will become a blessing. If people curse you, I will curse them. In Numbers 22, God says to Balaam, no, you can't curse that people. Not that it would really do anything to the people because God is the one who is in control of everything. But he's saying, if you go and try to curse them, I'm going to open up a can on you. And then I'll open up a can on the Moabites because they hired you. What God is saying is, I care about you. And I care about the Moabites. And this is not something you should be doing. Uh, God had already told the Israelites to go around them. God is protective of the Israelites, but he's also protective of Moab and Balaam. Numbers 22, verse 13. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. This is a good something. He throws God out of the bus. It's God's fault. I, I can't. This is like a high school boy breaking up with his girlfriend. God told me I'm not supposed to date you. Yeah, that, that's what that is right there. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent prince, princes more in number and more honorable than these. So apparently the first ones were JB. Now he's going to send the varsity team. Okay, I'm going to send my varsity guys down there. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor. <laughs> Gotta love that. Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. This means I will give you a lot of money. I'll give you a great reward. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. 
So you have 25 or more days to get to them, 25 or more days to go back, the whole little thing to figure it out where Balak says, this is national security, go back and offer him more money, 25 or more days to go back. By the end of this, it will be about three and a half months. Three and a half months. Balaam responds, verse 18, that Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do more or less. Now you might think, wow, that's an amazing answer. It is a politically correct answer is what it is. He said, I'd like to, but God said no. And what he's starting to do again is he's using God's name to get a little bit more money for himself. All commentators agree that this is exactly what is happening. Now, God had already said no. It should have been the end of the story. He should have left it right there. But Balaam doesn't. He doesn't. Verse 19, he says, So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know more. This means more money of what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men have come to you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So the first time it's no. The second time is okay. Now look at verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. So what's the deal with God, right? Is God bipolar? He says no, then he says go, and then he's mad because Balaam rent. He's like that crazy ex-boyfriend or girlfriend of yours. You never knew if they were coming or going. You know, what, what, what's going on with, with God? Now, if you, if you look at deeply at the words of the text, you see really what's going on. In verse 12, you should not go with them. Verse 20, God says, go with them. The phrase with them, it isn't the same Hebrew wording. Now, in the first time, it says, imahim. And what it means is to go physically and mentally. And so God says, no, don't go mentally or physically with them. The second time, it's this wording, it's like this, itom. And what that means is, go physically, but not mentally. You don't go to fulfill their agenda. It's like, you want to go, fine, but do not go and do what they tell you to do. This is why God says, only do what I say. Now, Balaam is like us. He only hears half of what God says. Like, you know, it's like, it's like oh, I love you. God loves me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't have to listen to him. There, there's more there. I mean, God talks about obedience and grace in the midst of all this. Balaam doesn't listen because he's like us. He hears a yes. He's happy. He's got his agenda. He saddles his donkey. And God becomes angry because he went. Now, the word there for went is the word halak. And it means to go and to live in or walk in the ways of. It's a metaphor for how you live your life or your conduct. Like when we say, walk the talk, or how's your spiritual walk, we're asking, how's it going between you and God? Are you walking like God is calling you to live? God says to Balaam, if you go, don't live in their ways. And Balaam was going to go live exactly in their ways to get exactly what he wanted. He was not going to do what God asked him to do. It's kind of like us. We try to convince other people our motives are always so, so pure, but we and God know that they're not. Now, after this story, Balaam still shows up in the Old Testament, never in a good way. Even in the New Testament, Peter's referencing corrupt leaders. In 2 Peter 2.15, he says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. That's Balaam. And God is frustrated because when Balaam walks, when he halaks, it's the wrong way. And God wants Balaam to know he doesn't have divine consent to do what he's doing. How does God get the message across? In a very funny way. Verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now he, this man, was riding his, on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. So the donkey's like, la, 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 oh, right? 
goes off into the field. Now, Balaam, he's really embarrassed, like, I can't control my donkey. What's going on with this? And he starts to beat his donkey. It's like, I can't, my donkey. And Balaam's struck, that's the word to beat, the donkey to turn her back, turn her into the road. Verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stirred in a narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on either side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So the donkey's like, oh, crap. And Balaam's like, ah, my foot. Gets off. What does he do? Beats his donkey. Beats his donkey. Poor donkey. I mean, you're like, oh, my goodness. Uh, so, so he beat her, struck her again. Verse 26, and the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there is no way to turn either to the right or to the left. So God keeps making the way more and more narrow. If you see what's happening. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. What does Balaam do? Freaks out. She's like, I'm just going to lay down on the road. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck again, beat the donkey with his staff. Now, I thought about reading this to you in the King James Version, okay? Because it's classic. It says says here, he smote his ass with his staff. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) okay. Just imagine every time you read the word donkey. Yeah, it's great. Now, anybody have a dog? Anybody have a dog? Your dog ever run off, and it's like sees like a squirrel or a bird or something that wasn't you, and it's like starts running. You're like, ah, oh, get back! And it's like hours later, and you finally catch that, and you are so mad. You just want to kill that thing. That's Balaam and his donkey right there. Verse 28, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? The donkey seems very reasonable, Okay. Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. Like he had those two guys with him, they're watching him. Because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. This has got to be like a love-hate relationship, I think. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all of your life long to this day? King James Version, okay? Am I not thine ass upon which thou has ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? It's just classic. It's just classic. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Again, the donkey is very reasonable. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed and fell face down. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? So I'm not going to... Behold, I have... I have come out to oppose you because your way, your walk, your course of life, okay, is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. I told you in which way you were supposed to go. I told you these people were blessed. You did not listen. You only heard half of what I said, and you were going to completely dishonor me in what you were going to do and my people. Now, you may have heard this story before. Some of you never. You're like, oh, holy cow. And you might think a talking donkey in the Bible sounds a little too much like Shrek. Donkey. You know, you might think that. Now, sometimes people like to critique and criticize the scriptures for being fantasy or being made up. But the scriptures go out of the way to tell you this is not a normal occurrence. It is not a normal occurrence. It's outside the bounds of normalcy. It's why we call them miracles. It's not a natural thing. It's not the dog on YouTube that goes, I love you. It's not what it is. It's not the Olong Johnson's cat. And I, I told the band about this last week, and they're like, what is the Olong Johnson's cat? This is the Olong Johnson's cat. Olong Johnson's Johnson. cat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
That, that is not what this is. The donkey is not like, Okay. Anybody not seen that? Anybody seen that? It's got like 5 million views. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. The text says, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey because you know it's not normal. It is God initiated. God does this thing because he wanted the donkey to talk because God wants to make a point. And the point is that even this talking donkey is grace. The talking donkey is grace. The original readers of the story would see the story full of irony because donkeys don't do much except carry things and pull things along and have one-eyed look. It's like glass-eyed dumbness. That's all they have. Yet a donkey is upstaging the most well-known prophet in the entire known ancient world. Balaam is supposed to be a seer, and he is supposed to understand the movements of animals and see the future, but he cannot control his own ass. His own donkey. He can't do it. Balaam is a prophet. He should be able to control spiritual matters. But three times he is almost killed because he fails to see what God is doing directly in front of him. It is irony. The donkey sees it. The prophet does not. The Hebrew word for donkey is this word. It's word hamor. Hamor. But the word here isn't hamor. It's this word athone. And athone means a female donkey. It's a she-donkey. And so you have, you have this guy, Balaam is a prophet. He is human. He is male. You've got the donkey. She is non-human. She's not a prophet. She is female. And she's more perceptive to the things of God than he is to the things of God. Now, you've got to start asking, why does God even put this story in here? In the end, Balaam doesn't hurt the Israelites. He can't do that. What you have to understand is the Torah is written to help us to understand who has control and who has authority in all things. Balaam is the one the world looks at and says, oh, that guy, he has so much power. He's so amazing. He has so much authority. And when you read the story, you realize he has nothing underneath his own control. If only we would believe this. If only we would believe this. God finds all these ways to get his point across. I think if we allow ourselves to step back just for a moment, look at the wider picture, you will see a few things. You know, Balaam wanted God on his own terms. He wanted God just to give him all the yeses he wanted and for God to be who he wanted God to be and not who God actually was. And Balaam didn't want to hear the word no. Does that sound familiar? All of us should say yes, that, that, that's us. And so first off, the most important thing is Balaam needed to have a right understanding of God, just like we need to have a right understanding of God. Because if we miss who God is, it destroys all we're living for. I mean, it's more than just knowledge. Oh, I know these five facts. It's about, it's about devotion and connectedness. It's about transformation as we begin to live the life that God calls us to live, to walk in the ways that he calls us to walk. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us this understanding only happens through God's revelation. This is why God shows up to Balaam and he says, Balaam, I told you no. He shows up through self-revelation. Philosophy and religion, it's speculation. It is not revelation. Balaam, like so many people today, is looking into the sky and he's going, oh, I wonder what God's like. Revelation is God telling us who he actually is. He's revealing his plan. He's revealing his work. God speaks into human history. And in case we miss that, he comes to human history in the form of Jesus to further reveal himself who he is. The God who is unknown has made himself known to his people. And if we don't know who God is, we miss the entire point of our own existence. And here's the rub. The problem today is I don't think that a lot of people don't know who God is. It's that we don't really like who God is. 
Because we labor under this misconception in our lives that we are the king of our own universe. And then God comes in and we think that God labors under some kind of myth where he thinks he's in charge and he gives commands and doesn't take a vote. Seriously, that's very troubling. What's, what's wrong with God? He thinks he's king of kings and lord of lords. Doesn't he know, I'm king of kings and lord of lords? We're trying to maintain all this in our own lives. And our lives are constantly falling apart because we aren't king and lord of our own lives. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, unlike the blindness of Balaam, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He says, I want God to tell you who he is, and I want you to believe that, and I want you to live in that. That's a great prayer. Our world is just like Balaam's world. Probably a great name for a TV show, Balaam's World, right? You know, if you go home and you DVR Oprah or Dr. Phil or Ellen or The View, you'll see there's a lot of people out there talking about prayer, but no one praying to God. There's lots of conversations about prayer, but not about God. Our culture values spirituality. Oh, they're so spiritual, they're so spiritual, they're so spiritual, but they don't value God. Spirituality is about us all bettering ourselves and getting our own glory. It doesn't matter what God you serve as long as you get what you want. I will tell you this element. It matters who you pray to. It matters who you serve. It matters what you believe. Prayer is a language of relationship. We pray to Jesus, the Father, the Spirit. We believe in one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. We pray to the Father because He gave Himself a name. But what makes that possible is the Son. What brings us into relationship with the Son is the Spirit. He convicts of sin, leads and guides us truth, pours out His love in our hearts. Because God works in His kids, we get to have relationship. That's how it works. Romans 8 even says that we sometimes don't even know how to pray exactly correctly. And in those places, the Spirit knows, and He brings our requests before our Father. He is a dad who loves his kids, and he knows our intention. We cannot and do not manipulate God. God is holy, He is righteous, He is good, He is just, He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, and He is also all-loving. That is who God is, and that is the God that we worship, King of kings and Lord of lords. If Balaam would have only understood that. The second thing Balaam wants, needs to learn is the word no. No. Okay. God says no. Balaam comes again, and God says, fine, go if you're going to go, but don't become like them. Balaam's simply trying to get around God. I mean, anybody here have, have a kid at some point in their life learned how to, like, you know, put you and your spouse against each other? It happens at some point. They may not do it consciously, but maybe, you know, subconsciously. Most two important questions you've got to ask your kid is, have you asked your mother this, and what did she say? Right? <laughs> those, those are the ones you've got to ask. Why do kids do that? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Oh, did God really say this? I know it looks really clear in the scriptures, but I don't really think he really meant that. I think he meant something else. None of us like to hear the word no. I mean, even if you're at work and you have some like idea and you tell your boss about it and they're like, oh, that's dumb. And you start to complain about your boss to everybody because your boss is stupid and won't listen to you. Maybe you have an idea for you and your spouse to do on the weekend and, and they're like, ah, oh, that's dumb. And so you, in the back of your mind, just grumble and complain about them the entire time. You go to God with a harebrained idea and God is like, no. No, and we hate hearing no. And we have all these excuses for why we do what we want to do, especially when we are wrong. You know, it's like if we're really angry, oh, well, that's just how things work in my culture. You know, things like that. Or, or maybe if you flap the hand real easily, you say things like, well, that's just how I was raised. Or maybe you're, you're biting and mean to people. You say, well, that's how I show love. Or maybe you gossip a lot and you say, well, I'm just trying to help. Like, like any excuse will make our bad choices better. Like God is saying, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Just gossip about those people. I, I didn't realize that, you know, that, that's just how you show love. I mean, oh, my goodness. 
I mean, like God would really say that. I mean, sometimes because we don't like to be told no, we don't tell others no when they do need to be told no. The writers of the Bible are not naive about us asking God for things. The Bible is full of stories about people who ask God things and God says no. The Bible probably has more stories about God saying no than God saying yes. Jesus tells Peter no at the transfiguration. He tells James and John no when they ask to sit at his left and his right hands. The disciples go into the Samaritan village and they kind of blow them off. In Luke 9.54, they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like Jesus would go, that's a good one, yeah. No, he says no. And all through the Bible, you see this. Four separate occasions, four different people, Moses, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Jonah all get discouraged and they say, God, please take my life. You know what God says? No, 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 no. He tells them all no. Don't you think when their depression lifts a little bit, they're kind of glad God said no? I mean, seriously. I mean, we thank God that he says no. It is fundamental to the relationship that we have with God and the nature of prayer that God always reserves the right to say no. Otherwise, it would be a complete and utter disaster. Every kind of power human beings have access to, we find a way to use it with great destructiveness. Verbal power, financial power, political power, nuclear power. Think if Balaam's power was real. Well, I can just ask God for anything and he's going to do this thing. Imagine if in prayer we had access to supernatural power to make everything work out the way that we think it needed to work out all the time. It would be a total disaster. Anybody who thinks that the, that the existence of unanswered prayers or God saying no disproves the efficacy of prayer or the power or the reality of God has not thought about it very deeply at all. This is why it's always wrong to look for a magic formula like Balaam. Oh, this will make the prayer work. I'll, I'll just pray in Jesus' name. Oh, and then it's got to work. Or I'll just add on the phrase, if it be your will, well, that's it. Or if I just pray with enough boldness, if I have enough faith, then God's got to do it. Oh, I've got enough faith, then God is beholden to me now because I have a lot of faith. See, Balaam didn't understand that prayer is not an incantation. Prayer is a talk with a person, the God of the universe. And sometimes our requests will be wrong and God says no. And I'll tell you, thank God that God says no. God is gracious to Balaam by telling him no. God is gracious to you and me by laying some boundaries on our life. It's like we have said in this series before as we talk through some of these people, we have to decide between an easy life and an obedient life. We need to be a people who live in obedience. If you decide to live an obedient life, God is eventually going to bless that, but not always all of a sudden and not how you think. But the scriptures constantly promise that God will be with us, and that is a greater reward than anything. What is amazing when you read through the entire Old Testament and the scriptures, you get to this idea that Jesus comes in grace to us. Just like he did with Balaam, he shows us the truth. I mean, God makes all of these promises, the whole biblical narrative, that I will send a redeemer. I will send a redeemer. He makes it in Genesis 3, then then he makes it to Noah, he makes it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, and eventually what happens? The promised Savior does come. And just like the Israelites were led out of bondage in Egypt, we as a people now get to be led out of our own bondage into freedom and grace and life, because God is good for what he said. In the book of John, it says that God came, Jesus came, and he walked among us. He walked, he clocked, and we need to be a people who ask ourselves the question, will we walk with him? Will we live in the ways that he calls us to? We're gonna, are we going to live a lot like Balaam? Always questioning God, always saying, well, God, I'm not too sure about that. You know, I'm going to do this instead. Are we going to be those who listen when God says no? are overjoyed when he says yes, who wait when he says, hold on, take some more time, 
Think about this, and I'm going to work in you through the midst of it, and we'll be a people who begin to walk in his ways. I mean, these are the questions that we need to start to answer. Are we really honestly going to walk in the ways that God calls us to walk? We're going to continue to try and constantly go around him to get what we think we need. And every time we do that, it becomes utter disaster. I mean, I I could probably ask every single one of you in this room, when you have made your own decisions and followed your own way, what happens in the end? It always crashes and burns. And yet, for some reason, we think if we just did it our own way a little bit differently next time, it's going to work out. It doesn't. This is why we are a people who need to not be like Balaam and simply surrender our lives fully to who Jesus is. Only then will our lives begin to make sense because they're beginning to be lived the way that God called us to live them. This is one of the reasons we go to communion every single week. It's a reminder of our lives laid down at the foot of the cross of Christ. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. That he was broken and he bled out to pay for our sin because we cannot pay for our own. And by doing that, he brings us back into relationship with God again. Because our God is a God who rescues and redeems. Uh, the band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some uh, dignities in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe, maybe you've been in that spot, or even in that spot right now, where you think that, you know, it's my own way, and I've got it the right way, and every time it just ends up just crashing and burning. And you want someone to pray with you about that. They would love to pray with you about that. Maybe there's a place in your life where God is telling you no, and you don't like the no, but you know you need to trust it, but you're having a hard time. They'd love to pray with you about that. Again, we have to understand that our God is good. He is better than us. He understands us. He's further and farther than any of us do. For God, all of eternity is a completed event. And so he knows exactly what we need and how to bring about his sovereignty in our lives. We need to be a people who trust him in the midst of that. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what God has done in our lives. And there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, maybe meet some people. Uh, and, you know, Mark is starting to have some conversations and start to go a little bit deeper. Maybe if you have some friends in your lives and you're starting to do something really crazy and not trusting God, they can be like, hey, you're a knucklehead. Stop. You know, and they can be like donkey, and you can be like Balaam. Just don't call him an ass. You know, it'll be, okay. Can I say that? Yeah, I can say that. Okay. I just did, right? Dear God, forgive me. for <laughs> um, That's the thing. We need each other in, in each other's lives. I mean, that, some of us need to be the donkeys, and some of us need to, you know, when we're being the Balaams, and we need that for each other. And so in that, we want to always encourage you guys to get into community with one another, to grow as God calls us to grow. He is good. We simply need to trust him because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to honor you and to walk in your ways. That you have come to walk among us. And in that you've called us to walk with you. So today, teach us what it means to trust you. And all the places where we are so unsure about what you're doing or what you've said or what you're going to continue to do. Have us understand that everything is in your more than capable hands. And if you have reached and, and held us and grabbed onto us, that we would begin to walk with you. That we would halak and walk in your ways. 
that we would walk side by side with you, trusting for you for what is good and what is right and what is true. That we believe all the words that you have said and trust the grace that you have given and live in the redemption and hope that you have provided. To just to honor you in all things. We ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.